what something had to give. And I chose a, a stable, full-time, <laughs> very well-paid benefits job <laughs> for whatever reason. Wait, what did we do? <laughs> This is Writing in Real Life, a podcast about writing, publishing, parenthood, and marriage. I'm Barry Liga. And I'm Morgan Baden. Let's get started. Morgan, you got a lot going on. And I that's got... and that's got to feel good because, you know, uh, we, we jointly, but you mm-hmm. individually, obviously took a big leap a few months ago when you left Scholastic. Yeah. Uh, the idea being that you would be home and that you would be writing and everything would be great. Um, but of course, that's a leap of faith. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you did not, you had it's a leap of something. It's I'll a leap tell of you. something, yeah. <laughs> you, you had one book obviously coming out, The uh-huh. Hive, uh, which we encourage people to order right now. We'll talk about that later, too. Um, but uh, other than that, like, there was nothing guaranteed. There was there, nothing guaranteed. There were no guarantees yep. that, that you were going to be able to make a go of this. Mm-hmm. Um, talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so it's definitely a leap of faith or a leap of something, as I said, um, and scary and exciting and enthralling and all of that stuff all at once. Um, and I'm, I feel like it's starting to pay off a little bit. There's some stuff going on that's really exciting that I would not have had the room for had I not left. And also... I mean, we, you know, we're, we're going to be coy because yeah. that's what we do on this podcast. We, we teased people about four of my projects for a year before we revealed what they were. Um, you've got a couple of things that have cropped up yeah. recently. And truly, uh, like, and cropped up. Yeah but, yeah. but neither of those would have come up if you had not intentionally sought them. That's correct. Yes. You know, it, in, in one case, you told somebody you were interested in doing something and they got back to you and said, Oh yeah, we have this. Uh-huh. In another case, you contacted some folks you didn't know at all mm-hmm. um, and said, Hey, you know, I would be interested in blah, blah, blah. And they got back to you and said, Oh, perhaps that could happen. Right. So you wouldn't have done those things if you were still working full time. Absolutely not because I wouldn't have had the space for them right. or the time. Um, and I think it's one of those, don't laugh. It's going to be like the secret kind of things, but once you, I'm finding that once I made space, both mental and actual creative space for writing, whole new avenues opened up to me that I hadn't noticed before. Right. And that's, you know, that's where I, I'm, I'm exploring those avenues essentially. And I couldn't have done that before, of course, because I had a very, very busy, um, job with lots of responsibility and, no, I don't have that. So, so it's really, it's really exciting and also weird, but also like very, you know, uh, an author, Lauren Morrill, who writes sort of rom-com YA said something the other day on Instagram, which was, you know, authors, if you don't ask your publisher for something, they're probably not going to do it, but there's no harm in asking. And sometimes you'll get the answer that you're looking for. Right. And I feel like I that's sort of the advice that I, I was taking, which is go ask people for things. Ask them if you can be involved in a project. Sign up for it. Raise your hand, whether like karmically or spiritually or actually or, you know, by emailing or liking a tweet or whatever and see what happens. So why don't you, so you've got these two things sure, floating yeah. around uh-huh. that are sort of incohate right now. Um, but what else have you got going on? Cause you're, you've got 
other projects and you've got some news. Yes, so exciting news from the past couple of weeks. Um, you know, and maybe some other people know, I was sort of in a fuzzy place with my representation. And uh, I'm no longer in a fuzzy place anymore. I'm officially agented by Kathleen Anderson of Anderson Literary Management. Yay! Yeah. We know her. We know her. (laughs) I signed the official agency agreement a few days ago. And that was fuzzy just because... It was fuzzy because she is your agent, longtime agent, your whole career. And she took on representing me for The Hive. And then sort of post-Hive contract... Um, asked to see what I was working on, gave me some great feedback on it, was and looking I'll, at that. to sell it sort of as a favor. Exactly. Said. Yeah. It was, and said, you know, I'll sell this for you. I like absolutes. Yeah. <laughs> I like knowing where I stand. So um, so I had to check with her and, and be like, are we official or not? Are we dating? Circle right. yes or no. Well, but also because you had finished another book in the meantime. You had another manuscript. Yep. And you didn't I needed know, to know what to do with like, it. Yeah. Should I give it to her? Does, should I look for somebody else? Exactly. Like, what should I do? Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So, um, so in essence, the answer was, no, I'm your agent. Yeah. Give me everything. Right. Um, I want to sell it all, which is hopefully what will happen. <laughs> so yeah. So anyway, so she's got um, a manuscript that she's um, been working with me on for the past few months. I just finished something else this week that she will have this week. I'm sending it to her hopefully today. Um, and that's a whole interesting story too because then we have to decide which one she's going to go out with first. Right. Which is a whole separate conversation. Yeah, you're in an interesting position. You yeah. know, most people, they write a book, they find an agent, the agent sells that book. But you are in a position where... You had written one book, and but you had written it a long time ago, right? And had been sort of sitting on it. So while she was looking at that, in the meantime, you finished another book, right? And now you've got these two books that are very, very different, different, yeah, uh, from each other. And and you know, you have this decision to make of how do I want to put myself out there as a solo author, right? You know, not as a, a collaborator, yeah. And and that's something that, that you have to decide, and I do not uh, envy yeah. you. It's a really interesting thought process because they're so different, and it is a question of like, well, what do I want to be known for initially? Right. And that is a hard question to answer. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so here we are. So I think I know which one she's going to go out with first. Uh, I'm super excited about it. Hopefully the next show or perhaps the show after that, we will be reporting that you're on submission. But yes. That let's would be, ho- yeah. That would be cool. That would be amazing. So, um, yeah. So that's where I am right now. How about you? Where are you right now? Where am I right now? Um, I just had a book come out. Uh, the Flash, Crossover Crisis, Green Arrows, Perfect Shot. Um, Tell us what a crossover crisis is for those of us who are not comic book people. Well, you know, actually, uh, even the publisher doesn't know this yet, but the the, the subtitle has two meanings. Oh, um, but the 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 meaning that is most obvious is that it's a crossover between all of the characters on the various uh, CW TV shows. So the so Flash, Flash, Supergirl, Green, Green Arrow, Arrow, The Legends of Tomorrow. Um, so it's a crossover between all of them, and it's a big crisis. I mean, otherwise, why would they all get together? You know, right. um, superheroes never get together just for a picnic or potluck or something uh-huh, like that. Yeah. It's always there's got to be a villain. In fact, there was a comic once; it was really funny, where these two superheroes were getting married, 
and they were freaking out because a villain always attacks during superhero weddings. Right. And the whole issue, they are panicking that there's going to be this massive supervillain attack. And there isn't. The whole comic is just a beautiful wedding, uh-huh. you know? But the whole time they're like, be on alert, be That's on alert, funny. they're going to attack. Um, so that was that was fun. But yeah, the, this is a big crossover crisis. The, the second meaning for that phrase will become obvious by the end of the series. Ooh. It's three books. The first one is... Flash and Green Arrow. The second one will be out in March 2020, and that will be Supergirl. Um, and I'm just having a lot of fun with these books, and I'm I'm really digging deep into the DC catalog of characters and using some characters that will just have people going, "Wait, what? <laughs> they let him use that character? Um, it's a lot of fun. Good. It's it's, it's cool. Um, so that just came out, and obviously in a few weeks we have the Hive. Yep. And that's really cool. And uh, I'm working on a bunch of other things at the same time. I've got some work to do on on Unedited, which is the big, crazy, thousand-page book people have heard me talk about. That comes out next summer. And then I am working on a, uh, a new YA that will not be out till 2021, but such are the vagaries and slownesses of publishing that I have to write it now. It's so wild. Like, definitely now, you know, I read the the... Um, deal announcements every week. Sure. And yeah, it's like announcing a book that will be available in fall 2022. Yeah. And I'm like, this is, it's such yeah. a wild business. I know, I know. And it's like, mine hasn't even been announced yet. Yeah. It hasn't even been an official uh-huh. announcement, which is why I'm not really talking about right. it all that much. Um, but no, so I'm working on that. So yeah, I'm working on all that stuff. I have a couple of secret projects that are so secret I can't even hint at them mm-hmm. at this point. Um, but uh, hopefully, you know, they're the kind of things I'm working on in my haha spare time. And, uh, and hopefully I'll be able to say something about them sooner rather than later. But uh, I'm, I'm keeping busy. <laughs> I'm, definitely, I would say. I'm definitely keeping busy. We talked a few minutes ago about you quitting your day job and writing full time. And it's very interesting that we, we discussed that because a little while ago you sent me a tweet thread from an author named Tobias Buckel, who actually I've talked about on this show before. Oh, really? Um, a year or so ago, he, I believe, began a Patreon um, for himself. Okay. And we talked about Patreon and In Kickstarter mm-hmm. and just that whole model and how that works for writers or how that doesn't work. We talked about that. And uh, he's a very, he's a, a sci-fi author. And, and like many sci-fi authors, I have found extraordinarily thoughtful mm. about the the minutiae and the day-to-day realities of being a working writer. I don't know why it is that sci-fi writers are like this, but I, I've always, whenever I read like something really interesting and thoughtful about this, usually it turns out the person's a sci-fi writer. Hmm. So he did this tweet thread that you sent to me about writers and day jobs. Yep. And uh, we will put a link in the show notes, obviously. And it is all about how writers should not feel shame in having a day job. It's all about... How, uh, you know, famous writers had day jobs. He goes down a list, you know, Hemingway, Faulkner, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And by the way, not just day jobs, but like long-term careers. Right. These oh, guys sure. had. Yeah. yeah. It's, not, it's not like they were, you know. Temping. Temping you know? somewhere. Yeah. Right, no, they had long-term yeah. full-time careers. Right. But, you know, the history books have written them as writers and right, authors. because that's what we know them as. Right. But sure, like Sherwood Anderson was an ad man, you know. Right. I mean, wrote advertising. That's what he did for a living. But he wrote, you know, fiction on the side. And um, I, I, I found it incredibly interesting because one of the things he talks about is you shouldn't feel like you're a failure as a writer if you need a day job. Right. 
Which is something I have felt in the past, certainly. You know, I, I one of the reasons why I made a clean break was that I felt like, oh, I'm not a real writer if I have another job. Oh, wow. Um, which, of course, isn't true. I don't want people to think that's true. I want to disabuse them of that notion. And I certainly knew for a very long time that people had day jobs in addition to writing. I knew that, I mean, I, I think statistically most writers, most people who write books that you would go read in the library or a bookstore mm-hmm. have some sort of other source of income. Yep. Uh, if not a very understanding spouse, right. some, sort, some, some sort of a yeah. day job. There's a reason why you see so many lawyer writers and, and you know, teacher writers yep. and, and all this stuff. Um, doctor writers, all these people, I don't know how they find the time. And that to me was always the issue is I, of course. You know, I don't know where I would find the time. And I don't know how you found the time when you were working full time and having kids, New Jersey transit. You know, that's where I New found Jersey the time. Transit. So, but how do you think about that? How do you feel about that as somebody who literally just left her day job yeah. to focus on being a writer? Uh-huh. Um, how, how do you feel about the idea of, of like, like what if you had to go back and have a day job? I mean, if I had to go back and have a day job, which who knows, I might have to, right. um, I would be fine with that. But that's always been the problem. The problem with me is that I also loved my corporate career yeah. and I got a lot of satisfaction out of going to an office every day and having a team and doing this, this sort of really interesting work that luckily in my case did have to do with writing and did have to do with children's books and, and great brands. But I also know a lot of people who, um, who are writers or aspiring writers who prefer their day job be something completely unrelated to sure. writing yeah. so that then they have that mental space um, and sort of that energy for their personal writing. One of the things that started to happen to me as I advanced in my career was I was giving all of my best words to my job. Uh, yeah. Because that, you know, my job was writing, uh, a lot of the time. And then I would come home and be like, I, I don't have any words left for the day. Yep. I've given them yep. all to Scholastic. I'm out. Yeah. Um, that was not to interrupt, but that was my problem. You know, I, yeah. worked, I worked in the comic book industry. Yep. I spent eight hours a day sitting at a computer writing about comic books. And the last thing I wanted to do when I came home was sit at a computer and write comic books. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I, yeah, I had no mental bandwidth left for that sort of thing. Yeah. And you know, my situation is a little different because we planned for this in significant and financial ways. And, um, I guess for me, like, you know, I I think the beauty of sort of millennialism (laughs) and the workforce today is that people shift around a lot and there's not, um, there's not a stigma attached to that anymore. Right. Which I think is one of the greatest things about about millennial work culture is that you know, like I said, you can you can job hop, you can change things, you can be a remote worker or a freelancer, and then hop back into the full time workforce, and and sort of no one bats an eye. Yeah. Um, me personally, I don't know what the future holds. I'm I feel so incredibly lucky that I am able to take this time right now to explore writing full time. I hope it sticks around. If it if I feel the need to go back to a full-time job, like an office job, I won't feel any shame about that. Again, because I, I, I'm very proud of my successes right. in, in the corporate world. Um, but temperamentally, yeah, oh, I mean, yeah. I, I, I feel like I feel like there's a difference between you and me temperamentally yes. as far as that sort of thing goes. And I don't, I can't say for sure whether it's a uh, 
whether it's an innate thing or mm-hmm. a learned thing. Yeah. Because it's been so long since I worked in I mean, it's been office. what, 15 years? Uh, close to 15 years. 15 years, years. Yeah. yeah. Close to 15 and years. And think about how much offices have oh, changed. Oh, I'm, I'm sure. Yeah. I'm sure. Um, so, again, I, I don't know if it's, if it's just something that I've developed over 15 years, but I do know that I was miserable in an office environment. And you were miserable from day one, right? Day one. Yeah. From day one, I was miserable. Whereas I was thrilled you and were thrilled. giddy. Right. But it's also I'm, different. I was in New York City. Yeah. You were in like suburban Maryland. Is that right? Yeah, Baltimore, but yeah. Just, just yeah, outside Baltimore. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like it, that's a very different it's environment. It's a very different environment. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think, you know, I, I'm curious to see, p- people should know that, that sort of our plan, the way yeah. we planned this out was we planned it out where you could, where we would have a year mm-hmm. that you would be focused on writing and, and not worrying and about not income. worrying about income. Yeah. And, and we were very fortunate that we were able to, to set that up. Um, and that then we would reassess Yes, uh-huh. after a year. I'm curious to see after a year, if your attitude is still, Oh sure. I could go back to work. Or if you're like, Oh my God, I can't right. do it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. because I know, but again, I mean, from the beginning, I hated being in an office. Mm-hmm. Um, and the thought of like getting a jobby job, <laughs> I like it just locks my spine in yeah. place. Like it just, it, Oh my God, I can't even talk articulately. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's only been three or four months for me yeah. being home full time. Like, yes, I absolutely love being home full time. Right. There are absolutely quite a few things that I miss from sure. office life. Yeah. And every now and then I get a pang of like, ooh, like I'll see, you know, someone running for the train in right. our cute little town. And I'm like, oh, that used to be me. <laughs> what? I, and I definitely like feel that pang of like, right. who am I without that? Yeah. But now I... I you know, again, I don't want to get like ridiculously cheesy here, but like, I feel like I'm sort of forging this new identity now. No, you are. And that's also really exciting. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 So we'll see. We uh, will see. It's yeah. a very, I, I haven't, I've been working since the day I turned 14, yeah. literally the day. And to be 40 now, and for the first time in my life, not bringing in an income, like yeah. a steady income. I'm, I should clarify, I'm doing some random freelancing here and there. Yeah. Um, and obviously, we got paid for the hive. Right. <laughs> but like right now, too, and I, I've got things on the horizon, but I haven't signed any contracts yet. And so, yeah, it is a very bizarre feeling to not be bringing an in income right now. Right. And I suddenly, for the first time, really empathize with people who um, become stay-at-home parents after being in the workforce yeah. and suddenly being like, I don't have any money coming in. What a weird feeling. Right. Um, so yeah, so that's where I am. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess the, the point is, you know, we, we agree with what uh, Tobias is saying. Uh, no shame in that game. No, no shame in that at all. But again, it, it I, I just want to add that I also don't think there's anything wrong with having the ambition of not having the day job. Oh, of course not. You know, um, isn't that every, I mean, I, I, I don't I'm, know. Isn't that the goal? Well, but not for everybody. Again, there are people who love having that day job. Mm-hmm. It keeps them grounded. It keeps them, it, it makes them feel uh, stable. Yeah. You know, I remember uh, talking to Nancy Whirlin when I, when she and I first met um, and, uh, and she talked about how, you know, she's got this day job that she absolutely loves. Yeah. And, and, you know, she had published enough that I think she probably could have done without the day mm-hmm. job, but she, in, she enjoyed some of the, you know, you, yeah, yeah, it, yeah. you know, there are things you miss. I think she enjoyed the social aspects, the camaraderie, the, the, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And it just, it, it, it stabilized her. Yeah. I mean, honestly, if we didn't have kids, yeah, I'd probably still have my day job. 
Well, if we didn't have kids, we'd still be living in New York. Yeah, well, I'm saying, but I'd still yeah. be writing, you know, evenings and weekends right. and probably would be fine with that. Yeah. It's just throw two little ones in the mix and you don't have that time anymore. Right. Um, so something had to give. Yeah. And I chose a stable, full-time, <laughs> very well-paid benefits job <laughs> for whatever reason. Wait, what did we do? <laughs> I mean, I don't want to, this isn't, I don't want this to turn into Morgan's therapy session, but Trump had a lot to do with this too, which was, oh, right. The world could end at any moment. Yeah. I got to give this a go now while I still feel it. Follow your dream while you can. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And also with the express purpose of allowing more time in my day to contribute to causes and to election campaigns. So that's happening too. I have a call at one, one o'clock today with moms demand action. Hey, there we go. Mm -hmm. Cause we've both done that too. We've both done a little bit of, uh, you know, I, I did, I wrote a couple press releases for a candidate, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, you know, do, doing whatever we can with the, the skills we bring to the table. Yeah. Life is short. Yeah. Yeah. So enough about you. Let's talk about me. Um, that is enough about me. I'm fine with that. <laughs> <laughs> so I just want to talk about something briefly uh, that was on Twitter that I did on Twitter. Uh-huh. Um, just for the people who listen to this show who don't follow me on Twitter or who uh-huh. may have missed it. And that was, uh, I had a, a, what do they call it? A tweet storm? Uh, a thread. A thread. Yeah. I see people say tweet storm. I, like, I mean, I like that's from storm. like 2011. Yeah, for sure. It sounds, you know, it sounds sort of like the Flash. So It's like his villain. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Barry has to go take notes. Hang on a second. Yeah, hang on, everybody. <laughs> Flash versus tweet storm. <laughs> um, I actually love that idea. <laughs> anyway, so, so I, I did a thread about uh, pre-orders. And we'll put a link in the show notes. And it was something like... Well, let's talk about what pre-orders are. Sure. Well, I was just going to say, it's something like 20 tweets long. Yeah. But I think it reads quickly. And you did an unroll of it, so mm-hmm. we, we can put a link into that so yeah. it's easy for people to read. It, it got some attention. It got like, you know, over 250 likes and 100 some retweets, something like that. Um, but but what we're ta- So pre-orders, for those who don't know, is, as you can imagine, when you order something before it's actually available. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in a couple of weeks now, Apple's going to announce the new iPhone and they're going to say, you can order it on Friday and it comes out in two weeks. So that's a pre-order, right? And you do that so you can make sure you get the thing that you want mm-hmm. on the day, the first day it's available, if that's important to you. And obviously um, for books, Amazon is, pro- is the biggest place right. where pre-orders are logged, but you can pre-order from your local indie bookstore, yep. um, Barnes and Noble, yep. you know, All obviously places, from, from yep. different places. Yep. And, you know, pre-orders in and of themselves are not a bad thing. Um, they... I actually make use of them quite a bit yeah. for certain books. Yeah. Mostly because I don't usually, like, keep lists anywhere of, of books that I'm looking forward to being released. Right. So I'll just pre-order them on Amazon and if then, I know I'm going to want it. And then it. they just come when they're, when they're ready. And yeah. literally at midnight on the, the day before release, I suddenly get a notification like your... Because most of it is... is Kindle, yeah. um, you know, your pre-order of such and such book has arrived. And I'm like, oh, right. I for- it's, it's like a nice little treat to myself. I right. forgot that I did it. Right. And, and, and I think that's the way it should be used. It's a treat. It's convenience for you. It's sort of a reward for you as a loyal reader yeah. that you can sort of offload thinking about this. You don't have to remember a pub date or a drop date. It just comes to yeah. you. you. That's a it. really good way of thinking about yeah. it is that I, it allows me to offload thinking yeah. about it. And I should say, by the way, I only do this like 
four times a year. Sure. So very minimal. But those are probably four books you really care about. Absolutely. But I'm saying compared to, I buy many more than four books per year. Yeah. And I only do about four books per year. So like keeping that in mind too, I, a very solid book buyer, book consumer, only do this occasionally. Yeah. Your percentage is is pretty low. Yeah. Um, But again, it. I think that's a good use of pre-orders. Yeah. Certainly, like, I pre-order music right, a lot. Right, right, yeah. Um, but I think the problem is that now pre-orders are being used as a metric yeah, uh, by publishers to determine the success or failure of a book before the book is even available. Yeah. And this used to happen to a degree. You know, um, bookstores place their orders for books anywhere three to six months before the book comes out. And publishers would be able to tell, oh, you know, bookstores didn't order that many copies of this book, you know, so there won't be that many copies out there. Or, you know, bookstores order a lot of copies, many more than we thought. Let's get the marketing and publicity machinery in motion and capitalize on this. And I think the problem now is that, you know, pre-orders instead of being looked at as oh this is wonderful look at this you know look at how many actual readers are interested that's wonderful instead um they're being used as a way to determine whether or not the book is a success and before it's been released it hasn't even come out yet yeah and as a result there's a lot of pressure on authors Mm -hmm. to um communicate to their fans go pre-order this book Mm -hmm. this bothers me for so many reasons um, for one thing, it's, it's putting a lot of pressure on authors to deliver something that many are not empowered to do. Right. Um, you know, I have something around a little over 7,000 followers on Twitter. Believe me, if I had a way of getting all 7,000 of those people to push a button and pre-order my book... I would do it. Right. Like, I'd be an idiot not to do it. Right. 7,000 guaranteed sales before the book even comes out? Perfect. Of course I would do that. I have no way of doing that. And yet, publishers are telling me that's my job. Right. Is to yeah. get those 7,000 people yeah. to, to place pre-orders. Um, I think it also places a lot of pressure on readers because the way you as an author get your readers to do this is you have to ask them. Yeah. And... That means you're, you know, and we're all told, you see something five times on social media, you ignore it until the sixth. Mm -hmm. So that means if you are a fan of a certain author, you are seeing on their social a stream of, hey, my book comes out on the 23rd, pre-order it today. Hey, my Uh book comes out. Here's a pre-order link. Hey, my book comes out. If you pre-order it now, you'll get a special bookmark. Hey, my book comes out. And that puts a lot of pressure on the reader. I mean, it certainly turns the reader off To do this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and, And it turns the reader... From a fan into just a sale. Mm-hmm. And that really bothers me. Yeah. You know, I, I said as part of my, my Twitter thread, um, I don't want to leverage my fans. I just want to write books for them. Mm-hmm. And the good thing about social is the relationship you can have yeah. with your, your readers. The bad thing is that, as with everything else with social media, it becomes quantified, analyzed, and monetized. Mm-hmm. And... It really, it really bothers me that this thing that is supposed to be pleasant and fun and on the side lucrative, because right, hopefully yeah. if these people continue to like me on social, they'll buy more of my books. Right. But that's sort of the, the, the implicit yeah. understanding. Yeah. This, this pressure on pre-orders makes it explicit. Yeah. I have to be telling them, yeah, hi, no, I really like that you followed me and liked my tweet, but what I really want is your money. Well, it's also... Another thing is that we are already asking a lot from our readers. Yeah. We're asking them 
to pre-order. We're asking yep. them to purchase or check out of the library. We're also asking them to leave reviews. Right, right. We're asking them to read, to leave reviews. Yeah. To tweet about it. To tell their friends. Exactly. Yeah. Um, that's, a, that's a lot to ask. But we're also missing the huge elephant in the room right now, which is that you and me, we're young adult authors. Right. Or middle grade. Yeah. These are kids. So suddenly publishers are asking their YA authors to have their teenage or younger readers pre-order. Yeah. Which doesn't make sense because these are kids who don't have credit cards. So they, if they have they Amazon can't. accounts, it's their parents' yeah. Amazon account. So yeah. it's not like they can sit down, you know, your 11-year-old reading The Flash isn't going to sit down at the computer one night and be like, let me go pre-order all these Flash books right. using my dad's <laughs> credit card. Like, it's just not a thing. There was a famous... Uh... I think it was Soupy Sales, like in the in the fifties, who had a kids show, a variety okay. show on TV. Um, I think it was Soupy Sales. I'll check. I'll put it in the show notes correctly, so you can all check there for the. I correction. don't even know what that is. But but any, no, he had a, a kids variety show. I don't know what Soupy show. Sales is. He was a guy. Okay. He was a, a, a guy who had a variety show for kids. Okay. And he did a gag on the show once. We said, "Hey, kids." Go to mom and dad's wallet and see these funny pieces of paper. Take all the ones you can find and send them to me. Oh. And like it went, people went ballistic right, because yeah. like it was a gag. Right, but like yeah. kids are like, uh-huh, okay, sure. sure. Yeah. I don't know what this stuff is. Yeah, okay, yeah. sure. And that's yeah, that, yeah, that's how it feels. Like I feel like I'm Soupy Sales telling yeah. these kids, hey, go 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 bug your parents. Right. Go badger your parents uh-huh. to pre-order this thing. Yeah. Yeah, it's a whole other level to it. Now, the argument against that, of course, is that, what is it, half of readers of young adult books are actually adults. Which, I, we've talked about that statistic before, and, and there's some mushiness in Of course, in the that. data is very hard to quantify, yeah. yeah. But, um, but so, like, sure, if you want to target adults who read YA, sure. raise his hand, yeah. makes sense. But, like, no, we're writing books for kids. And, I mean, and the, the, the pressure books are marketed at kids, yeah. and so it's absurd. To, yeah, the pressure yeah. to get kids to pre-order is really misplaced. Right. So, so it's tough. And and it just bothers oh, wait, me. Can you talk about your Thanksgiving metaphor? You know what? I, I this is something I wanted to talk about because it wasn't my Thanksgiving metaphor; it was yours. Yes, that's true. I extended the metaphor, but basically the idea is that you know one of the the things with pre-orders is that you're told you know to make sure that you get it pre-order it. Sure. The idea being, oh, if you don't pre-order it, it might not be in the bookstore and then yeah. you won't be able to get it. Um, you know, with Thanksgiving turkeys, you don't have to pre-order your Thanksgiving turkey. Right. I know there are people who do. <laughs> but, you you know, you just, you go to the store and you figure they're going to have turkeys because yeah. it's Thanksgiving. Yeah. And, you and all, if this and grocery store ran out because I came the morning of, go I'll go to the next one. one. Yeah. And not only that, but you also know that it doesn't matter if you buy a turkey on Thanksgiving or not, there will still be turkeys for Christmas. Right. And... The pre-order system is sort of like saying, if you don't pre-order, there might not be Thanksgiving turkeys. And if you don't buy one at Thanksgiving, there definitely won't be any at Christmas. Yeah, yeah. And that's problematic. You know what we haven't touched on, or you didn't touch on in your thread either? I can't believe I missed something because it was a long thread. About pre-orders is the day of experience of going into a bookstore on a day that a book you're excited about is released. Sure. I like that. Yeah. And... I'm guessing booksellers like that too, because if I'm physically in a bookstore to pick up a copy of something I'm excited about, I'm probably going to 
can pick up something else. Too. Yeah, you might. I mean, that's the whole theory behind you know free giveaways. That yeah. was free comic book day. That's why right. we invented free comic book day. Which, was, by the way, works for us. Yeah, yeah. we yeah. take our kids to free yeah. to the comic book we store. Bring people. People come in to get something free, and they buy stuff. That's uh-huh. what we do. We go in, we get some free comics, and we buy things. I'm like, oh, there's Riverdale comics right. sold. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. it's great. And but that's it's almost interesting to me about like how I haven't noticed a push against pre-orders from booksellers and I think I would because but booksellers like it see this is my problem is pre-orders push all of the responsibility and burden down to the person who is least able to shoulder it and that is the individual reader yeah you're right the individual reader becomes responsible for the level of success that a book is going to have the fact of the matter is that publishers bought this book and published it for a reason. They believe in it, right? Mm-hmm. They want this book to exist. They should feel that way no matter what. Yeah. And support it no matter what. Yeah. Booksellers have the responsibility of reading the advanced copy, looking at the reviews, and deciding how are we going to stock this. Yeah. Both of those groups, publishers and booksellers, have more data and more money than the individual consumer. Or the author. Or the author. Therefore, they should shoulder the burden of the risk of how are we going to promote this. If you're a bookseller, like, like, figure it out. Like, you should know. Like, you're the expert. You you are the expert. You should know your community and your clientele, and you should be able to decide. I believe in this book. I'll do something to promote it. I'll put a sign up in my store. I'll do. I'll bring the author for a signing. Whatever. Um, Publishers, you know, the, the problem I have is. You know, you have situations where a publisher is excited about a book and then they look at the pre-orders, the pre-orders are low and they get less excited and so they don't do as much to promote it and the book doesn't succeed and it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Right. Um, Whereas, you know, if they believed in it when they bought it, they should still believe in it when it's coming out and they should support it no matter what. And sometimes, yeah, they're going to lose because they made a mistake, but sometimes they're going to win and that's why they have the money and that's why a publisher gets like... 80 to 90% of the cover price of a book right. uh-huh. is because they're, they're the short, ones yep. taking the risk. Mm-hmm. The author and the reader have much less wherewithal to take that risk. Right. And this is the problem with, with not with the pre-order system. Pre-orders, again, as I said before, are fine and they're useful and they're a wonderful tool and mm-hmm. they're, they're a great convenience to the reader. But when you start using them as, as a, they're a metric... They're a weapon, too. Yeah, yeah. When you start using them as a metric, when you weaponize them... Uh, when you use them as an excuse to back out of supporting a book, that is a big problem. Yeah. You heard from an author on Twitter who said that pre-orders for one of her upcoming releases Not were only so low. it killed that book and killed a deal she was in the middle of. Like, yep. that's horrible. Yeah, that's insane. Because what do we say to people in publishing all the time? Seriously, what do we say all the time? You have to read the book. Yeah. All the time. Uh-huh. When there's a controversy about yeah. a book, hey, have you read, read it? Book. You have to uh-huh. read it. When, when, when it takes forever for a publisher to get back to you when you're hoping they're going to buy it, look, I got to read the book. Yep. When fans say, why is it taking so long? So, well, people have to read the book. We have to read it five or six times before it gets to you. This person reads it, copy editor, proofreader, blah, 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 uh-huh. blah. You have to read the book. Yeah. And then pre-order numbers come in and suddenly nobody has to read the book. Right. Suddenly, oh, pre-order numbers are low. Yeah. Get the goddamn book out there and let people read yep. it. And then decide. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that, that tweet that was really broke my heart. Yeah. That broke my heart that that author had that experience. Yeah. Yeah. 
With that said, pre-order the hive. With that said. And that's the d- part here. That is. That is. Like, that is. Yep. Well, and we're and giant I admitted, it, I admitted yeah. it in the thread. I said, look, you know, you, you got this far through the thread. Now I'm going to be a hypocrite and beg you to pre-order my book yep. because that's the way the game is played. Yeah. And, and we really, we don't have many options. Yeah. You know? So pre-order the book. There's mm-hmm. links in the show notes. <laughs> What are you reading, Morg? I am so excited about what I'm reading. I am reading the brand new, speaking of pre-orders, uh, just released Sweet Valley High graphic novel. Yes. Um, it, it's called Academic All-Star? Question mark, which I just laugh at every time I see the title. Because I, love I, say, there's, I love when there's a question mark in a title. Right, because like I say it that way in my head now. Um, but this book had a um, an interesting uh, journey because I first heard about it, I don't know, maybe... 10 months ago and I immediately pre-ordered it and it was one of those books that was supposed to be delivered to me in March and then I just kept getting emails that said the delivery date was delayed um, because obviously the publishing date kept getting delayed and then all of a sudden last week I got an email that said it's on its way to you and I was super excited by the way, everybody, this was Morgan's first experience with comic book publishing it is. and how everything is late. Yep. Barry was like, oh, yeah, that's normal. Yeah. I was like, oh, okay. Anyway, so I'm reading it. It's a hoot. I love it. Uh, so that's what I'm reading. What are you reading? I am reading Famous Men Who Never Lived by oh. Kay Chess, um, which I had actually seen a, a um, an excerpt of it like a year ago, I think. No, not, it couldn't have been a year ago because it's newer than that, but several months ago. And I really enjoyed it. It's it's an alternate universe story, which I love alternate universe yeah, stories. Yeah, you do. Um, so I had read the excerpt and then I just, I forgot about it because I was reading other things and working so much. And uh, I stumbled upon the excerpt the other day. I was like, oh my God, that's right. I never finished reading this book. Yeah. Um, so I, I went ahead and availed myself of the local library nice. and checked it out <laughs> because libraries are important. So I went to the library and got it out and uh, I am enjoying it. Awesome. Visit us at writingrealllife.com where you can read show notes for each episode and also leave comments and offer suggestions for the show. Find us on Twitter at WIRL Podcast. And be sure to visit us on iTunes and leave us a rating and a review. Thanks, everyone. See you next time.